Today, before we uh, actually read our sermon text, what I want to do is I want to uh, read you from uh, Isaiah 52, verse 13 through 53, verse 12. And uh, the reason why is because in order to have a resurrection, we had to have a crucified Christ. And these words were written by Isaiah about 700 years before the coming of Christ, and they tell us what he went through. And so for us to uh, celebrate the resurrection, we should also mourn over the work that he had to go through on our behalf. Isaiah 52, starting in the 13th verse. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what they had not been told, them they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. When we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led to, as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. That's the work of the Lord, prophesied 700 years before he came, and the misery that he would go through for your sin and my sin. Our uh, sermon text today comes from Philippians, the book of Philippians. It's uh, the third chapter, it's verses 4 through 11. And our sermon today is entitled, To Know Jesus Christ and the Power of His Resurrection. So in Philippians chapter 3, starting in the fourth verse, it says these words. Though I might have confidence in the flesh, this is Paul writing, if anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, 
These things I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Once again, we've gone from winter to spring, and life is coming back to that beautiful fullness which God has ordained to happen each year. In Florida, it's not as noticeable as in many other places, but if you look, it's still plainly evident, isn't it? The grass greens up, the flowers rush forth from their buds into their blooms in a wild display of beauty, and the shackles of heavy coats or sweaters are replaced with light and comfortable clothes. Life takes on a different outlook in the spring, and this is what God intended. It is in the spring that God ordained the first month of the Hebrew calendar to occur, and it is in the middle of this first month that he decided that his son would be crucified. But just like the barley, which ripens at this time and puts forth its fruit, so God ordained that his own son would come forth from the grave through the power of the resurrection at this time as well. These things aren't coincidence, but they were decided by God as he set things in motion at the very beginning. Everything in nature is a reflection of his wisdom, and he uses the natural to make spiritual applications. It's all balanced and timed so perfectly that we can see and know that his wisdom ordained it all. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have a hope which has been anticipated from the very first moments of life on earth. Our first father, Adam, erred, and through him came death. That death spread to all men, and all men die because of it. But right there at the beginning, God made a promise that he would make all things right once again. And God always keeps his promises. The Bible details how he did it and how we can be a part of what he has done. The wonder of spring is a small reflection of the marvelous wonder of our hope in the true life, which will never die and which will never fade away. In the Gospel of John, it says this before Jesus was crucified. Now there were certain Greeks among them who's those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered him, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. In the springtime, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus, broke through the bonds of death, and he now offers that victory to anyone who will simply receive it by an act of faith. His resurrection is what makes ours possible. For those who believe, they will become an eternal product of his wondrous work. Our text verse for today comes from John chapter 11. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you? believe this. The Jewish people knew of the hope of Messiah, and they also knew of the resurrection of the righteous on the last day, when all souls would be brought before their creator for judgment. But it appears that most of them did not understand that the resurrection of the righteous was because of the work of the Messiah, and not something that they could earn. 
The connection wasn't made, even though the entire body of their scriptures pointed to that fact. Righteousness does not come from self before God, but rather it comes from God and it is bestowed upon an undeserving sinner. And once it is bestowed, it is the true hope which is shown in spring. That then becomes a reality to us, just as the flowers come out at this time of year. As surely as Jesus Christ came out of the tomb on that spring morning, we too can have the assurance of eternal life through him. And so, let's look at the word where it's all detailed and revealed. It is God's majestic and superior word. And so may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three individual thoughts for you today. The first is the curse. Each time at this year, or each year at this time, we come to church to hear about the hope of eternal life and the power of the resurrection. But without understanding the work of Jesus Christ in comparison to who we are before God, it doesn't really connect very well. And so today, we will first look at why Jesus was needed at all. When we understand that, then we can call out to him for what we truly need. Christians talk about getting saved or being saved, but not much thought is ever given to what that means. If we stop and think it through, though, as if we were souls out lost on an ocean after our ship had sunk, we can better see the connection. Unless someone comes along and pulls us out of the water, we will be lost, confined to a watery grave. Getting saved, then, from our perspective implies first and foremost that one is saved from something not for something. Because of our careless approach towards the words getting saved, people think we're simply talking about going to heaven. And everyone is going to heaven, right? I mean, I'm not as bad as the next guy. Until we see and treat getting saved as from rather than for, we're not really thinking clearly concerning our need for Jesus. And so at the time of the year when we celebrate the resurrection, we need to look at why a resurrection was needed. So let's go right back to the very beginning and see what happened at the fall of man in order to see what God has done to correct it. There, right after man was created, God gave him a command. It was one command and it was in the negative. Don't do this thing. Most of us know the story and we've read the words of judgment. First, they were pronounced upon the serpent, the deceiver. At the end of his sentence came the promise of a redeemer. The seed of the woman would come and crush the serpent's head. After that, the Lord turned to the sentencing of the woman and then the man. Here are the words that God spoke to both of them. Starting in verse 16 of chapter 3, we read this. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. In the bearing of each new life to be born, the woman would be sorrowed. She would feel the pain of the delivery and she would feel the pain of knowing that that child, like her, was destined for the grave someday. And the man would live a life of toil. He would eventually return to the dust from which he was taken. 
No human is exempt and all are found to be under this curse. Just ask a woman who's had a child or ask a man who gets up and goes to work each day. The judgment was spoken and the sentence was executed. But in this, there is more than just the terror of physical death. There was the surety of spiritual death and eternal separation from God. And we know this because God promised the man that he would die on the day that he disobeyed. And yet the man continued to live on for 930 years. The death God spoke of the first time was spiritual death. The death mentioned at the curse that we just read would be physical death, and that would follow. The premise of this is confirmed throughout the rest of the Bible. We are born spiritually dead, and we are destined for physical death. Unless the spiritual is made alive before the physical dies, we will remain forever dead and forever separated from God. Understanding this and seeing the consequences of our spiritually dead selves, the Bible shows several times and in several ways the seriousness of the matter. One time he destroyed the world by flood. Humanity was separate from God and took no thought of seeking him out. They corrupted themselves to the point where destruction was the only remedy. But in the middle of this great sea of wickedness, it says that one man found grace in the sight of the Lord. He was a preacher of righteousness among a race of unrighteousness. And so the Lord instructed him how to be carried through this destruction that was coming. We all know the story of Noah. The curse of death, which was pronounced on man, was now to be executed on a global scale. After this flood, a promise was made by the Lord that he would never destroy the earth by flood again. Instead, the relationship would be handled in a different way. A man named Abraham was selected and he was given a promise. Through him, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. One of his sons was chosen, Isaac, and then he was allowed to continue on this promise. And then one of his sons was chosen. He was Jacob, he is Israel. From him came the 12 patriarchs, chosen as a select and unique group. God would deal with them in one way while the rest of the world was allowed to follow their own path. To this chosen group came the law. It was God's standard for righteousness, where if a man did those things, he would live. But it was evident that no one could do all that the law required. The law only showed them how far below God's standard they really were. And the law showed them the need for grace. And grace was given. Once a year, they were given a day on which they could confess their shortcomings and be granted a temporary stay of God's wrath. This was the Day of Atonement. But through this group, there was more than just his law and his annual bestowal of grace for failing to meet that law. Through these people, Israel, there was also the promise of one who would come to restore all things. They were the stewards of God's law and the bearers of the line of God's promise. But for the grace of God, the curse would fall upon them. When they rejected the grace, the wrath would come. Throughout their history, the Bible shows judgment on their often unrepentant hearts and then mercy upon them when they would again turn their hearts toward him and ask him for healing. However, with only a few noted exceptions, such as Ruth in the book of Ruth, the rest of the world languished in sin, death, and separation. What would come of it all? How could the curse be removed? There is a curse upon us, a self-inflicted pain. Our father Adam broke God's command. It seems as if things will never be right again. And for his transgressions, 
our life, God will demand. But there at the beginning was a promise of one to come who would reverse the curse and right Adam's wrong. Whatever this one offers, I sure want me some. To the truth of his message, I wish to belong. Who will it be? How will it come about? The things that he offers, I know I can't do without. Our second thought today, the curse is reversed. Within the law of Moses, which was given to the people of Israel, there's an odd verse which Paul uses and he expands upon in the New Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, we read these words. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. What Paul told us concerning this is that in Christ, the curse of the law was transferred to Jesus at his cross. To understand this, we need to realize that the law is God's standard. It is the measure to which you and I can never attain. And so God, in his grace, stepped out of his eternal realm and united with his own creation. This is Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man. He was born without Adam's imperfection, and he was born within the covenant people of Israel under the law. Because he was sinless, he was qualified to meet God's standards, but he still had to do so. Was he capable of accomplishing the task? The four Gospels are recorded to show us that he wasn't just born without sin, but that he prevailed over the law by fulfilling it perfectly. The law which was contrary to us was fulfilled in him. But what good is that to us? Was God lording it over us? Was he showing us how greatly we deserved his judgment? No, that was already apparent in the giving of the law. So what good was it for us that Jesus had fulfilled the law? The answer is that within the law itself, there is what is known as the doctrine of substitution. One thing can take the place of another. On the day of grace, which is the day of atonement, an innocent animal was slain in place of the guilty. In this act, God's wrath against the sins of the people was restrained for yet one more year. It was their faith, it was their faith in this act which provided the grace and the mercy. But an animal is in a different category than a man. It could never truly take away sin. It could only temporarily withhold God's wrath at the sins of the people. A sinless man, however, could take away the sin. His death in substitution for the sin of Adam and of you and I, that would work. The fulfillment of the law by Jesus was not God's arrogant display of his greatness over his fallen creatures. It was a demonstration that the law was, in fact, fulfilled. His standard had been met. And that law, which allows for substitution, was now embodied by Jesus Christ. Finally, there was hope for us. If, in his grace, he would just give himself for us, then he could take away the curse, remove the wrath, and bring us out of the sentence of eternal condemnation that we deserve. So let's go back, and I want to evaluate with you the curse of God upon man in the Garden of Eden. There we will see the substitution was actually pictured. Let's look again at the words of the Lord to the woman and to Adam, and let's see Christ in them. 
The sentence begins with the woman. It says, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. Within the body of the law itself, Isaiah told us that Jesus would be known as a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. He was one whose soul was in labor. All of this was anticipated in his life and in his cross as a substitution for us. The sentence to the woman continues, In pain you shall bring forth children. Jesus gave his life while living under the law. He suffered at the cross to bring many sons, as the Bible says, to glory. In pain, he brought forth God's children. The sentence to the woman continues, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. The desire of the redeemed is to be the bride of Christ. We have been redeemed from the curse of the law in order to be united to a husband. Jesus is that husband who rules over his bride, the church, whom he purchased with his own blood. The sentence to the man begins, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In Isaiah, Jesus is said to be a root out of dry ground, the cursed ground. The sentence continues, In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Again in Isaiah, it says, He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Jesus labored throughout his life in the harvest field of man. He ate the food of his own creation all of his days, just like any other man. The sentence continues, Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Jesus Christ did not exempt himself from walking in this fallen world filled with thorns and thistles. And in his harvest field of man, there have been many who have rejected him, being thorns against him as he held out his grace and his love to them. The greatest example of this, though, is when Christ himself was given a crown of thorns, the very sentence of the first man for his disobedience became the crown of of the Lord who sentenced him. The sentence continues, and you shall eat the herb of the field. The instruction for the Passover in the book of Exodus says this, then they shall eat the, on, the fle- on that night the flesh roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Jesus not only participated in the Passover each year, he became our Passover lamb. He was crucified for us after leading a life of bitterness to redeem fallen man. He died on the same day that the Passover lamb was slaughtered, thus fulfilling perfectly the ancient pictures that he had given to his people. The sentence continues, In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. In the Garden of Gethsemane, according to Luke, Jesus sweat, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground, thus earning his bread, that being the bread of affliction, in order to redeem fallen man. The sentence continues, Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. The mortal part of the Lord Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross, was interned for the sins of his people committed by his own creatures. Thus he died in fulfillment of the law which he had given and which nobody else could measure up to. Death came in as a result of sin, and sin was dealt with in his obedient death. The very sentence of the first man for his rebellion was carried out in the person of Jesus Christ. The Lord God did not cause the man to receive anything that he himself wasn't willing to endure. Thus he is both just and the justifier of everyone who calls on him. But there is one exception in the curse between Adam and Jesus, and that's why we're here today. For dust you are, and 
to dust you shall return. Jesus, because he prevailed over the devil, was resurrected by the power of God. The curse has been removed in his resurrection, and now anyone who calls on his name will likewise be freed from the finality of death. To show us the wisdom of God, the plan of the ages, and the immensity of the act, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we need to go back again to a time before the law, the time of Noah, when God judged the world through water. In understanding the story of Noah, we can see the reality of what the resurrection signifies. In Genesis 8, verse 4, after the curse of the waters prevailing over the earth for 150 days, we read this. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. This day, the 17th day of the seventh month, is the same time of year that Jesus Christ came out of the grave almost 2,400 years later. You see, the Bible uses two different calendars. There's the creation calendar, which begins in the fall, and the redemption calendar, which begins at, uh, in the springtime. That came about at the time of the Exodus. Until the time of the Exodus, the calendar started in the fall. But at the Exodus, the first month was changed to the spring for the covenant people. It is the calendar of redemption. The 17th day of the seventh month in the creation calendar is the 17th day of the first month in the redemption calendar. On that day, the Ark of Noah rested on the mountains of Ararat. At that time, the curse of the waters reversed and began to subside. The name Ararat means the curse is reversed. On the same day that the Ark struck the ground and held fast, Noah was brought to the safety of the land called Ararat. The curse is reversed. Noah and his ark then is a picture of the true reversal of the curse which was pronounced all the way back at the fall of man in chapter 3 of Genesis. There, only five chapters after the fall of man, Noah and his amazing adventure was given as a sign of what was coming. Imagine the intricacy of what God did in order to bring that about. And then the wisdom of taking it and placing it in the pages of the Bible so that the two could be connected when looked at through the lens of Jesus Christ. Only in him can this beautiful plan be clearly seen. Everything in creation is balanced upon that central point in time, the cross and the resurrection. The cross took away that which was opposed to us and the resurrection granted the chance for new life and an eternal hope. His cross and his resurrection happened in the springtime, a time of renewal, a time of life. There in the wondrous springtime, Paul tells us that we were redeemed from the curse because of his cross. And it is the resurrection which proves it to us. In the work of Jesus Christ, the curse is reversed. The curse upon man was neither unjust nor unfair. What came upon us, we truly deserved indeed. It was we who turned our back on God without a care. When we honestly look in the mirror, it must be agreed. But the Lord Jesus, though no wrong he had done, bore the same curse that was pronounced on you and I, a crown of thorns and a cross of wood for God's own son. There at Calvary, the perfect one did die. Carried away in his death is my sin, and eternal life is promised in the resurrection. Over the devil, Hades, and death he did win to grant us eternal life without any imperfection. Our third, our final thought today is a righteousness which is not my own. The cross of Jesus Christ 
asks us to evaluate ourselves and our standing before God in a unique way. If you ask unbelievers why they should go to heaven someday, they will give you an immensely wide variety of answers. In an interview just this week, just this week, my, Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York City, said this in an interview with the New York Times. Here are his words. I'm telling you that if there is a God, if there is a God, he says, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close, he says. He believes that he has earned the right to go to heaven because of the money and the effort he spent on his liberal agenda, including anti-gun laws and taking on obesity and smoking. How about you? Maybe one of these answers is what you would give. I'm a good person. Or maybe I'm not a bad person. I'm not so bad as other people. I try to live a good life. I work hard at helping others. The list goes on and on. People comparing themselves to others or claiming that their deeds are sufficient to make God happy with them. It's the I problem. I, 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 I. But then there are a few who will honestly tell you, I'm headed for hell. They know they aren't good enough. They instinctively know it and they don't try to hide it. The reality which the Bible tells us is that nobody, nobody is good enough. The law given to Israel at Mount Sinai is God's standard, and we have all failed to meet it. Our attempts at doing good only demonstrate that we aren't good enough. Think about it. There have been billions and billions of people who have lived before you and me. Surely you can't be a better person than all of them, can you? Huh? And yet, other than Jesus... Not one of them has popped back out of the grave. Not one. They are all in the grave and they will stay there until judgment day. Only one man has ever come out of that pit and his name is Jesus. And his resurrection is the most documented occurrence in all of human history up to that point. We hold, the, we hold fast to stories about Julius Caesar. We all know about Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Cleopatra, Mark Antony, and a host of other notable figures of the past, and yet not one of them, nor any other person, has even a minute amount of evidence to back up their lives in comparison to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there is not one other validated record ever that a person has come out of the grave, not one. Of all of those billions and billions of people, not one. Now, how sure are you of being a good person? And so what is it that makes a follower of Jesus Christ so special? What is it that says this person is righteous before God? This one will be granted eternal life. Paul explains it in our sermon text today. I'll read you a portion of that from, from Philippians 3. But what things were gained to me, these things I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness, which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Before these words, if you remember, he showed us how he once was the cat's meow in being a good guy. He was of the covenant people. He was Israel. 
He was circumcised according to the law, meaning on the eighth day. He was of the noted tribe of Benjamin, which is a high honor indeed within the covenant community. He was, as he says, a Hebrew of Hebrews. It's a way of saying that he was the cream of the crop. One, on top of this, Paul was a Pharisee. He was a rabbi. He was a member of the highest class of Jewish religious society. He pursued the law in the very strictest sense. He persecuted those he felt were working against the law, and he was blameless in his actions under the law. If any person could claim a title to being a good guy and meriting heaven, it would be Paul. And yet, when he met Christ, he realized the truth. He was so far short of God's standards that he knew he could never be found worthy before God. Never. If Paul couldn't make it, how much any of us, billions and billions of us, not even as worthy as a man who was seemingly so worthy and yet so unworthy. And so to set the stage for the source of his righteousness, Paul told us that the things which were gained to him, that long and distinguished list of merit badges, those things he learned to count as loss for Christ. The heritage, the honors, the accolades, the studying, the promotions, none of it was of any value in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ because none of it, not one bit of it got him one step closer to the resurrection. In fact, he openly proclaimed that yet indeed I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. In saying this, he uses the word for rubbish, skibala. It's a word which comes from two other words, dog and throw. His previous riches were nothing more than something that you would toss to feed a dirty animal. Under the law, they were unclean animals. It's comparison to what Isaiah says about our deeds. Isaiah calls them filthy rags, using a term which indicates a menstrual cloth. Our deeds, even Paul's deeds, could do nothing to reverse the curse pronounced so long ago on our souls. But in his grace and in his tender mercies, God offered to him and to each of us a substitute. In Christ, we can be found, as Paul says, in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. This, this is the marvel of Jesus Christ. All of those stories, such as Noah on his little boat out there on the great sea of chaos, every type and every picture God has given in the pages of the Bible, it shows us time and time again that God has a plan and that what he does is open and available to all of us by a mere act of faith. And if you've been following through these 117 Genesis sermons that we've gone through, we have seen thousands and thousands of pictures of Jesus Christ. It is all pointing to him and what he has done for us. What is the marvel of the resurrection? Why are we here today? It is because in Jesus Christ, there is a reversal of the curse upon mankind. There is a righteousness that can be granted to us, not through our own deeds, but through his. In calling out and receiving him through a simple act of faith, the curse is reversed. We move from our cursed father, Adam, to the Lord Jesus. We too can share in the power of his resurrection while we yet walk in this tiring life we are united to Jesus Christ. 
we can fellowship together in his sufferings. In calling on him, we are conformed to his death so that we have, in time and at the call of God, the sure and unchanging guarantee that we are in Jesus Christ and that we will be raised to eternal life. People of the world are under the delusion that there are many paths to God or that all religions are the same. But there is no greater lie than this. There is, and if you understand the nature of God, there can be only one way to be reconciled to him. It is by what he has done for us, not by anything that we could do. We are completely and entirely at the mercy of God, and that mercy is displayed in the death of his own son for anyone who is willing to accept the premise, to believe in his work, and to call on his name. It is either Jesus or it is eternal death. Peter tells us this when he spoke to the people of Israel in Acts chapter 4, nor is there salvation in any other For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is hope in Jesus Christ because there is power in the resurrection for all who believe. Simply believe. If you've never taken the time to humbly ask him to forgive you of your sins and to grant you that eternal life, please do so today. Settle things with Christ be reconciled to God, and have the assurance that you are God's beloved child. You don't need to do anything special or go anywhere special to do it. You can sit right in your chair right now and just ask Jesus to forgive you and to grant you eternal life, and you will be granted that. That is what I was at, would ask of you today. The Bible says that now is the time of God's favor. Today is the day of salvation. You don't know if you're going to walk out that door and your car is going to get destroyed and you're going to die in an accident. Call on Jesus and be reconciled to God. Please. Our closing verse today comes from Luke 24, verses 5 and 6. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Next week is Genesis 47, verses 7 through 12. We're getting back into Genesis. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh is the name of that sermon. That'll be our 117th Genesis sermon. I'd like to say this to you before I give you our weekly poem. As I say to the people here each week, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. Our poem today, taken from some of the verses that we've looked at and a few others throughout the Bible, is called Sharing in the Resurrection. For so long, I thought I was good enough. I trusted in myself and not in what God had done. Of all the things I did, certainly it was good stuff. He would be happy with me like a favorite son. But then I heard the word about Jesus, that he had lived perfectly, something I had not done. And then he gave up his life for all of us. Why would he do that if I was really number one? If he needed to die so that I could live, then obviously I had it figured all wrong. It doesn't matter what I do or how much I give. I had overestimated myself all along. Those things that were once seemingly gained to me, I suddenly counted them for Christ as mere loss. Without him, I was separated from God eternally, unworthy and to be removed and disposed of like dross. Yet indeed, I also count all things as my heart now sings for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things. Only he died on a cross to reconcile us. 
I count my many gains as rubbish that I may gain Christ and in him be found, not having my own righteousness as one so selfish, but one which is from God by faith, one eternally sound. I wish to know him and him alone through the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings which do atone, being conformed to his death and awaiting perfection. If by any means that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead, an eternal state of glory I will gain because of the work of Christ, my Lord in my head. He is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in him, though he die, he shall live forever without fear or strife. Because of him, hallelujah, is our cry. When the last trumpet sounds, we will be taken to glory. We shall all be changed. Completion of the gospel story. Where, O death, where is your sting? When Christ our Savior, us to himself, does he bring? Where, O Hades, where is your victory? When Christ translates his children to eternal glory. The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord. My beloved brethren, be steadfast in all you've heard and saw and cling confidently to God's superior word. Know for certain that your labor is not in vain. Be of good cheer for you, Christ is coming again. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you for what you allowed him to go through before that, that would atone for our sins and take away our guilt before you. Thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. And may we all here say, as Paul said many, many years ago, may I boast of nothing, nothing but the cross of Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. Lord, we thank you for the gift of Jesus. We thank you for the resurrection and the absolute assurance of eternal life because of his work. We thank you and we praise you and we do so in his name. Amen. We get the instructions for the uh, Lord's Supper in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's the 11th chapter. And uh, Paul wrote these words for us. He uh, talked, obviously, to Luke about it. Luke, uh, his gospel reflects what's recorded here. And I want you to know before we uh, take the communion that uh, uh, this actually is matzah bread, which is used by the Jewish people to this day. It's used uh, in their uh, Passover celebrations and at other times. It's bread without yeast. Yeast in the Bible is a picture of sin. It's what causes us to be puffed up and prideful. And in Christ, there was no sin. So there's a picture of Christ there. And then if you look closely, if you hold it up to the light, you'll see lots of little holes in the matzah bread. And that is a picture of the holes that were torn into Jesus' back as he was uh, punished for our sins with that whip. It tore into him, and those holes reflect that. And if you look closely, also you see stripes all over this bread. And that's actually picturing the stripes that he went through. And these things the Jewish people don't even realize, even though they celebrate this year after year. So in anticipation of their reconciliation to him, which we've been seeing in the uh, Genesis sermons, I would ask that you would each day, as you say your prayers for others, keep a prayer for the people of Israel, and uh, that their eyes will be open to their long-lost Messiah. The Messiah of Israel is the Christ of the nations. And I would hope that they would know that very soon. And when they do know it, we'll be out of here. If you're a Christian, you'll be taken out at the rapture. So that's another reason to pray for the peace of Israel. All right. And uh, then we have, of course, the, uh, the wine, which is, he explicitly says, this is my blood. It's a picture of his blood. Everything about what we're going to take is a picture of what he went through. And so remember that as you uh, come forward to take these. For I received from the Lord 
that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And he would have blessed this bread. He would have said these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. A picture of the Christ coming from the grave. And he broke it, and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And his body was broken for each of us. In the same manner, after supper, he also took the cup, and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said these words. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So before you come forward, let's take a moment and talk to the Lord about how we stand before him. in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, sweetheart, the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ.
the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Mm-hmm. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the, giving us the opportunity to come here and to share in the re- crucifixion and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you for what he did, and how it gives us that eternal hope that will never die, that will never fade away. The glory of springtime is revealed in the glory of our Lord. We love you. We praise you. Please take care of each person here in the week ahead. Take them safely back to wherever they're going. And uh, may the praises of our Lord be upon their lips and in their hearts throughout the entire year. Not just on this one day, but throughout the whole year. Glorifying him and recognizing that he is the Lord. We love you and we praise you. Amen. Amen.